Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. James Elroy. My people. You're slumming tonight, I can tell. I also realize you had options tonight. You could have stayed home and you could have attended to your drug habits and your sex lives and your fatuous admiration of the burning out presidency of Barack Obama. You could have tucked your neurotic little dipshit kids in, but you didn't. You came here to see me, and I am nothing but grateful. If each and every one of you buy 1,000 copies of this book tonight, you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night for the rest of your lives. If each and every one of you buy 2,000 copies of this book tonight, you will be able to have unlimited sex with each and every person on this earth that you desire every night for the rest of your lives and still get into heaven as the result of a special dispensation signed by me, the Reverend Elroy. If each and every one of you buy 3,000 copies of this book tonight, you get the sex, you get into heaven. And for the first time in its hipster-haunted history, East Hollywood will rule the world. You heard it here first, off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. T.S. Eliot wrote, if you came this way, starting from anywhere, at any time and in any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion. You are not here to instruct yourself or carry report. You are here to kneel where prayer has been proven valid. And for yours truly, James Elroy, the death dog of American literature, what better place to bow my head in prayer than in the hipster-haunted heart of Los Angeles, my smog-bound fatherland, where I was born in the year of our Lord, 1948, the year of the rat <laughs> in Chinese astrology. T.S. Eliot also wrote, in my end is my beginning, and in my beginning is my end. With my new novel, Perfidia, I am going back 
to the chronological genesis of my career as a historical novelist. Perfidia is the first volume of the second L.A. Quartet. The original L.A. Quartet, four novels published between 1987 and 1992, was comprised of The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. In that work, overall, I merged the crime novel and the historical novel. I followed it up with the Underworld USA trilogy, three novels set in America at large between the years 1958 and 1972. The design of the second LA Quartet is unprecedented. I have taken real life and fictional characters from the first two bodies of work and in Perfidia, the first volume of the second LA Quartet, I have placed them in Los Angeles during the month of December 1941. I will follow it up with three more huge novels that will take these characters through to the end of World War II. Thus, I have reclaimed my past. Thus, I have done what Ross MacDonald said in the epilogue to his great trilogy, Archer in Jeopardy. In the end, I possess my birthplace and am possessed by its language. Tonight I will read a little bit of chapter two and I will answer the most invasively over personal questions that each and every one of you, peepers, prowlers, pederasts, pens, panty snippers, punks, and pimps has for me. Perfidia. It's a book for the whole family. <laughs> the name of your fucking family is the Manson family. Perfidia. Reminiscenza. I wandered off in a prairie blizzard 85 years ago. The cold rendered me spellbound then to now. I have outlived the decree and find myself afraid to die. I cannot will cloudbursts the way I once did. I must recollect with yet greater fury. It was a fever then. It remains a fever now. I will not die as long as I live this story. I run to then to buy myself moments now. 23 days, blood libel. A policeman knocks on a young woman's door. Murderer's flags a swirl. 23 days, this storm, reminiscenza. Chapter two, Kay Lake's diary, compiled and chronologically inserted by the Los Angeles Police Museum. Los Angeles, 
Saturday, December 6th, 1941, 11.23 a.m. I've begun this diary on impulse. An extraordinary scene unfolded as I sat on my separate bedroom terrace. I was sketching the southern view and heard the rumble of engines below me on the strip. I immediately got up and wrote down the precise time and date. I sensed what the rumble portended and I was right. A line of armored vehicles chugged west on sunset to fevered scrutiny and applause. It took a full 10 minutes for the armada to pass. The noise was loud, the cheers louder. People stopped their cars to get out and salute the young soldiers. It played hell with the flow of traffic, but no one seemed to care. The soldiers were delighted by this display of respect and affection. They waved and blew kisses. A half dozen waitresses from Dave's Blue Room ran out and passed them cases of liquor. Somebody shouted, America, and that's when I knew. The war is coming. I'm going to enlist. I always do what I say I'm going to do. I formally state my intent and proceed from that point. I am going to write a diary entry every day until the present world conflict concludes or the world blows up. I will walk away from my easy existence and seek official postings near the front lines. I live a dilettante's life now. My compulsive sketch artistry is a schoolgirl's attempt to capture confounding realities. My piano studies and emerging proficiency with the easier Chopin nocturnes stall my pursuit of a true cause. This lovely home in no way allays my psychic discomfort Lee Blanchard's indulgence is disconcerting more than anything else. This diary is a broadside against stasis and unrest. I have always felt superior to my surroundings. This house states that case most tellingly. I picked out every German expressionist print and every stick of blonde wood furniture. I'm a prairie girl from Sioux Falls, South Dakota and a gifted Aravist. I'm moving into my separate bedroom now. My own work is arrogantly displayed on the walls, interspersed with clay and Kandinsky. There are a dozen drawings of a light heavyweight named Bucky Bleichert. He has a hungry young man's body and large buck teeth. I have sketched him many times from ringside seats at the Olympic. 
Bucky Bleichert is a local celebrity who understands the ephemeral quality of celebrity and does not view boxing as a true cause. His circumspection in the ring delights me. I have never spoken to Bucky Bleichert, but I am certain that I understand him. Because I was a local celebrity once. It was February 39. I was 19. It all pertained to a bank robbery and its alleged solution. This house, a refuge a few years ago, a trap now. The robbery got me this house, not Lee's prudently invested fight winnings. Lee Blanchard is not a savvy investor, as is commonly held, nor is he my lover in the common sense. He entered my life to facilitate my destiny, whatever that is. I know it now. Sioux Falls was an insufficient destiny. The winter cold spells and summer heat waves left people dead. Indians strayed from nearby reservations and stabbed one another in speakeasies. Klansmen broke a Negro man out of the county jail. He was accused of raping a dim-witted white girl. The Klansmen convened a kangaroo court. The girl was slow to condemn or exonerate the man accused. The Klansmen staked him over a red ant hill in mid-August. The summer sun, or the ants, killed him. Local lore was divided on this. Protestants despised the few local Catholics. Nativist groups flourished throughout the Depression. Methodists were at odds with Lutherans and Baptists and vice versa. A range war over prized cattle broke out in 34. 14 men were killed near the Iowa state line. My parents and older brother were sweet-natured and content. Their only sin was lack of imagination. I pretended to be one of them in order to live within myself unobstructed. I lived to read, draw, and roam. People talked about me. I dropped racy bon mots in church. I did not care about my family. That fact mildly horrified me. I wanted to run away to Los Angeles and become someone else here. I got a job at a bookstore and stole a month's worth of cash receipts. I left my parents a perfunctory note of farewell. It was November 36. I was 16. The bus ride west featured dust storms and a flash flood near Albuquerque. Armed goons were stationed at the California border. They were charged to keep moonlighting Okies out. 
they were moonlighting LA policemen and a potent view of my destiny. That armored convoy has now passed out of range. That motorized rumble has now left my body. Nothing before this moment exists. The war is coming. I'm going to enlist. If you've got questions, I hope I have the answers. Yes? Uh, what is your opinion, opinion on the Sin City franchise? My what? Your opinion on the Sin City franchise. Like Sin City, the... Oh, uh, brother. I hate comic books. I don't read that shit. I know Sin City's a comic book and a motion picture. But we're back in L.A., December 1941, and I ignore the world around me. I have no opinions on any cultural matter whatsoever. <laughs> I write my books by hand. I've written 19 books by hand. I don't have a cell phone. The stack of pages for this book here was this big when I was done with it. God bless the creators and the audience for Sin City. It ain't me. I also don't dig, I don't dig comic books. I don't dig rock and roll. I don't dig country western music. I don't dig science fiction at all. Yes, man over here. Don't, now, don't give away Elizabeth Short's appearance in this book. I owe Betty Short my career and in many ways my sanity, my tall, handsome good looks, my probity, my bankroll, my alimony payments. And in the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short was the young woman hideously, misogynistically murdered in Los Angeles in January of 1941. She appears in the Black Dahlia, my novel, only in reminiscence. Parenthetically, do not ask me who killed her because I don't know Nobody knows, and all of your theories are bullshit. <laughs> Let this poor woman live in peace or live again in perfidia, which is set when she was 17 years old. How, if I'm taking characters from the last two bodies of work of mine, could I omit Betty Short? God bless you. Good question. Yes, boss. Do you watch TV? No. Do you own a TV? No. <laughs> Easy questions that I already answered for this man over here. Yeah, boss. I remember that Dudley was in Clandestine. I was wondering, does Clandestine tie in? No. Cl Clandestine is my second novel, a paperback original, published to no acclaim in 1980, but set in 1951. Yes, Dudley Smith appears in it. No, it has nothing to do with any of this. You have sharp eyes. God bless you. Uh, yes, boss. Uh, so have you always been trying to reclaim your past and your work? 
I've always been trying to reclaim the past in general. History has always owned me. World War II has always owned me. I'm surprised it took me this long to get around to it. Here's a good anecdote before the next question. Hold on, brother. Hold on. It's 1956. I'm eight years old. I believe that World War II was still going on. It was just that pervasively in the American consciousness. I said something that alerted my mother, a World War II generation woman, to this misconception of mine. She said, au contraire, Sonny, the war ended three years before you were born. I didn't believe her then, and I'm not so sure now. That's history for me. What Perfidia does at its core is describe history as a state of yearning. It's history itself that I yearn for, and I place my romantic fixations within the context of, in Perfidia's case, December 1941, and yearn anew. Do you want to live in the past? Is that I do live in the past, yes. <laughs> I'm having a blast talking to you on October 16th, 2014 AD, but you're going home in a couple hours and so am I. And what happens then? I hear Perfidia in the soundtrack of my mind. How many people know that Perfidia is the title of a circa 1940 big band tune? This man, yeah, most of you folks here. Uh, and now my heart cries out Perfidia. It's uh, a gas. There's a surf rock version, even though I don't dig that shit. There's a plain old rock and roll version, the forever plaid cut-ups covered it. There's Glenn Miller's version, vocal versions in Spanish and English. I dig it. Yes. Yeah, men are rare. I hate Citizen Kane. It's a crock of shit. Yeah. Turkey. It's a fucking turkey. You're better off watching a noir double feature over at the Beverly Cinema. Yes, woman over here. Well, see my dogs, you know, all three of them, Barco, Dudley, and Margaret, on the other side. You know, they visit me mystically, periodically. They jump on the bed, you motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. How come you don't have any hair? Yeah. I never liked you. I liked your ex-wives more than you. You're a dipshit. You're not that good a writer. Fuck off. I don't know why. It's perverse. But I like animals to abuse me. Big Patrick, what's shaking, baby? Good, brother. Yeah. First of all, Patrick, you're correct in describing my abode as a cage. I live in a cage and I drink toilet water from the bowl and I eat kibble dog food because I'm a fucking dog. Patrick, you know, you know how I do this. I hire researchers who compile fact sheets and chronologies so that I won't write myself into factual error. 
what I'm looking for is the extrapolative spark point. Perfidia is largely a novel of the grave injustice of the Japanese internment. It's set entirely, it's a novel in real time, the month of December 1941. When my researcher showed up with a stack of newspaper clippings from this city that month, I was delighted to see that the initial roundups of the alleged Japanese subversives was haphazardly implemented because this gave me narrative wiggle room. What I'm out to create is a seamless verisimilitude. If the human stories, the love stories, the inner human dramas that I place juxtaposed against history, the secret human infrastructure of large public events is credible to all of you, you will believe my historical fabrication. Yeah, boss. Um, if you had to recommend a, your bio work to a, a certain bio work to a casual reader, which would you prefer? Then we'll do a same trilogy or the other four I would tell you to start at the chronological beginning. This book, Perfidia, so you go for the big $30 bounce now. <laughs> and then you hold off. And you go to the first novel in the original L.A. Quartet. Kay Lake is the female lead. You go back and then you wait with bated breath after you've read the entire L.A. Quartet for volume two of the series to come out. You just wait there like this. In the meantime, you read my second ex-wife, Helen Canode's groovy two novels the Ticket Out and Wildcat play. You read my buddy Thomas Mallon's novel, Watergate. Tom, not I, is the great living historical novelist. If you've ever wanted to know what happened between the summer of 72 and 70, hold on, brother, hold on. Hold on. Are you a junkie? How come you're wearing those shades? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're either a junkie or you got astigmatism, one or the other. Yeah. Okay. If you've ever wanted to know, summer 72, summer 74, read Tom Mallon's book. It'll bite your boogaloo. Okay, what's this? Yes, woman over here. Um, what's your favorite steak to order? I like the cowboy steak. Yeah, because it's big, it's expensive. And it impresses people when you order it because they think you've got a big role. <laughs> and yeah, you know, you, it's the kind of steak you want to plant. Look, 70, 70 potatoes for this, and that's all the car. And it's some tasty shit too. <laughs> yes, boss. After all these years and all the people you talk to, have you ever developed an idea who might have murdered your own mother? No. 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 Next question. Yes, boss. When's the movie coming out? What movie? Perfidia? There ain't no movie. There ain't no option. There ain't no money for nothing. <laughs> Ask me why I write movies. Come on, somebody. Why do you write movies? Come on. Let's get it out of the way. Why? Money is the gift that no one ever returns. The color, green, is always flattering, and the size, large, 
always fits. <laughs> Man back here. So this book is going back from the chronological time where you wrote a lot of your other work. Have you ever thought about what sort of the most late period you would consider writing about, maybe the 60s or the, what sort of your... The Underworld USA trilogy ends in May 1972. That's it. Nothing before. Yes? It's true. What's your uh, daily writing process like when you're in like the midst of a novel? In the midst of a novel, I go to bed at 8 and get up at 2.30. Because I want to get a drop on the day. You ever seen a pit bull eyeing a cat? He wants the cat, right? Nothing will deter the pit bull from getting the cat. That's me. Dawn is the cat. I'm creeping up on it. Like that, like that. My beady eyes are fixed. No, that was my nervous breakdown. <laughs> that wasn't a novel. <laughs> Two and a half years. And also, is there any anticipation of like Pete Bondurant? Or Pete Bondurant will be in the third book. Yeah. yeah. Big, big Pete, yeah. Oh. Yes, boss. After uh, you went to John Burroughs, you went to Fairfax. Yeah. Um, how long did you go to Fairfax for, and, and, and how did you get kicked out? Brother. Now stop. Now stop. I went to Fairfax from September 1962 until I was expelled for generally bad behavior in March 1965. Next question. Yes. That who was? No, Bill Stoner was on the sheriffs. Yeah, he worked sheriffs' homicide. But it seemed like it wasn't was like not even less than a year after the film came out that all of a sudden this cold crime. I can't claim that one. No. It was a fantastic film. Thank you. Come on, people. <laughs> yeah. Why do you write? No, that's the closing question. <laughs> that's where I get to go into the uh, elegiac hoo-ha and, and bullshit and impress you with how sensitive I am. <laughs> not yet, not yet. Yes, woman over here. What makes you laugh? What is, what's, your, what's your comedy or funny comedy? Pimp humor. <laughs> Cop racial shtick. <laughs> Pit bulls drinking toilet water. The crazy antics of canines. There was recently a story on the internet that a friend of mine told me, repeated to me, about a beautiful Bengal tiger in India 
who ate a poacher on a protected tiger preserve. And the man who told me about it is Indian. He's the man that owns the dry cleaner at Beverly and Larchmont. His name's Raj. And he said the following. It's the funniest shit I've heard in years. <laughs> and he said, and this is in his own voice, you know, James, I have been thinking about the tiger and the poacher, and I have decided I have no sympathy for the poacher. He fucked with the tiger's habitat, so the tiger fucked with him. It is the law of the jungle, baby. It is the endless circle of life. Now, if you know Raj, who owns the dry cleaner at Beverly and Larchmont, you know that he is a man of impeccable dignity and goodwill. And we talked a couple of times after that about the tiger. Raj, what is it? I like animals to abuse me. What is it about the tiger and the poacher? Poacher was just trying to feed his kids, and the motherfucking tiger ate his ass with the kids right there. And he said to me in his voice, James, you know that the tiger is a creature of astounding beauty and probity. And we human beings are mongrels by comparison. <laughs> What's the upshot of all this shit? Save the Bengal tiger. And fuck the poacher. <laughs> he was fucking with the tiger's habitat, so the tiger fucked with him. Raise your hand if you agree. Yeah. Okay, next question. Is the series with Fincher, is that something that you're, is it an original series, or is it based on another work, or what's, what's the story on that? It's my original. More will be revealed at some point. In the meantime, it's a paycheck. <laughs> yes, boss. You've, uh, you've done some commentary today more. On yeah. Uh -huh. um, you have a favorite war? You put a gun to my head and said, what's my favorite film noir? It's one that I commentated on with Eddie Muller, and it's Andre Dutas' film, Crime Wave, with Sterling Hayden as the overweeningly tall, burly, pissed off, he's trying to quit smoking, robbery detective who's got the big bone for slinky she-wolf Phyllis Kirk, whose husband, former Broadway dancer, Gene Nelson, may not be man enough for her. It's the best depiction of the inscrutable cop I've ever seen in movies. It's analogous to the Continental Op in Red Harvest. Lieutenant Sims, Sterling Hayden, plays off factions within a robbery gang. The movie ends on a note of ambiguous forgiveness. We never know who he is. It's my favorite cop performance ever. We screen this movie periodically at Noir Night at the Los Angeles Police Museum. We may do it again this December. Good question. Yeah, boss. You talked about your researchers, but your dialogue and the cop humor is, is so spot on. 
How much time do you have to hang with LAPD robbery homicide to, to get that? I make, I make it up. And it's, it's the answer that most people don't want. I live this shit, I make it up, I trust my instincts. Yeah, boss. What were you writing when you came up with the idea for this uh, next quartet? I was between books. Like Colt 6000? Uh, it was between the Hilliker curse and now. And what was that spark? That, like? Here's what happened. It was a cold winter night, early in 08. It was a Saturday night. I was looking out the southbound window of my dipshit pad at the Ravenswood Apartments, my strapped divorce guy's pad. I was wondering why I didn't have a girlfriend. And the answer was apparent to me, because you're a dipshit. <laughs> and I knew it in the moment. Eureka! The heavens parted. I saw a bunch of forlorn Japanese Americans in the back of a U.S. Army truck. Soldiers were up front with Tommy guns. They were driving up a winding snow-covered mountain pass in February of 1942, headed for the Manzanar internment camp. Within 30 seconds, I knew the second LA Quartet. World War II LA. Characters from the LA Quartet and the Underworld USA trilogy in LA as much younger people. The first volume will be called Perfidia. It will be a 700 page novel told in real time the month of December 1941. The focal point, the narrative lightning rod, the murder of a perhaps innocent, perhaps subversive Japanese family in the hours preceding the Pearl Harbor attack. And I said, that's good. That's a good, that's a good night's work. Yes, boss. So uh, how did you decide on the four POVs that you did decide on, since you got so many amazing characters you could have chosen? How are you going to walk away from Dudley Smith, the overarching villain of the original L.A. Quartet? How are you going to walk away from Kay Lake, who's my favorite female character in all 19 of my books? William H. Parker, the greatest policeman of the American 20th century, who appears in small roles in L.A. Confidential and white jazz, and you have to have the Japanese viewpoint in this book, Hideo Ishida, who is referenced in the early pages of The Black Dahlia. I read from Kay Lake's perspective. Kay Lake is the female lead of The Black Dahlia. She goes on in that earlier written, later set book to marry Bucky Blankert, the young man she's fixated on in the prologue I just read. How can I do this and remain true to the concept of seamless verisimilitude? I'm never in Kay Lake's head in The Black Dahlia. Bucky Blankert narrates that book. One has to assume, narrative-wise, that there are things like her life during World War II that Kay has omitted from Bucky. Perfidia is Kay's big omission to the man she will ultimately love.
say a few words about the uh, various trinities which uh, pervade it's a very good question. Perfidia is a novel of troikas, of trinities, of triads. There is William H. Parker in love with both Kay Lake and a tall red-haired phantom that he glimpsed once at Northwestern University. Kay Lake is in love with Bucky Blackert. William H. Parker, and Scotty Bennett, the brutish robbery detective from my most recent novel, preceding Perfidia, Bloods a Rover. Hideo Oshida, who's a closeted homosexual, is fixated on Bucky Blackert. The man that Kate Lake is fixated on is fixated on Dudley Smith and William H. Parker. Allegiances run in Troikas. The United States, Russia, Great Britain, the Allied powers during World War II. Up until Hitler's invasion of Russia, the evil Axis powers, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and Soviet Russia. Protestants versus Catholics in the British Isles. The Roman Catholic Parker and Smith at odds with the Protestant LAPD. History as a state of yearning. Perfidia, perfidy or betrayal in Spanish. Allegiance. Men and women, Parker, Smith, Lake, Ashida, of deep and devout belief. Fuck yes. <laughs> did you ever talk to Curtis Hansen after he did LA Confidential? I've talked to Curtis Hansen on numerous occasions. Yeah. So you're friends with him? I'm friends with Curtis Hansen, yeah. Yes, hey, Big Patrick. Uh, with greatness comes uh, whacked out fans and stalkers. How do you deal with them and have you ever killed them? <laughs> you know, I've never had a stalker. I've never had a stalker. Yeah. Now, a woman dropped off a note for me at Book Soup once uh, in front of my then girlfriend right there, arousing her ire. And she was a, a rock and roll whack job. She had all these things going that I don't approve of. Nail polish, <laughs> tattoos, piercings, diaphanous see-through attire, left-wing lapel buttons. <laughs> and her note said, Dear James, I am the ultimate she-wolf and master of dogs. <laughs> I command you to come to my West Hollywood love crib tonight at midnight. And I kept the note for a while, and every time I needed a good yuck, I'd pull it off. And the closing lines of Raymond Chandler's first novel, The Big Sleep, and I never saw her again. The she-wolf and master of all dogs. 
I think she went on to Michael Connolly. <laughs> or David Foster Wallace, and that's why he killed himself. The she-wolf was on his trail. Or Philip Seymour Hoffman. The she-wolf was on his trail. Come on, more questions. Come on. Yes? I've noticed that you bring up your ex-wives a lot. Would you say that they all have something in common? And if so, what was it? And do you see that you left them for a certain reason in common? I only mentioned by name my one ex-wife, who's my second, Helen Canode, the author of The Ticket Out and Wildcat Play, which I urge all of you to read. Helen's my best friend. We remain best friends, and I want you to read her shit, along with Tom Mallon's. I know you wanted something racier, but you're not, you're not going to get it. Yeah, boss. Joan Red Blood to Rupert. Did we discuss, do you know John? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I read the Hillary Curse. You read the Hillary yeah, I'll bet you did. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't seen Joan since I was six. Yeah. So I don't know if she's read it. I dedicated the book to her anonymously, J.M. Yeah. yeah, Jennifer, you had your hand up. Oh, I just recently read the Hillary Curse, and just wondering if you're still a dipshit with women. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Are you cognizant that the, when you plug your ex-wife's book and the more money she makes, the lower your alimony is? <laughs> There's about 120 people in this room right now, and I don't think if you buy both of Helen's novels, yeah, it's about 400 bucks in royalties. I don't think it's going to make a difference. <laughs> if everybody here buys 3,000 copies of Helen Canode's two novels, Wildcat Play and The Ticket Out, it could make a difference. It takes a village. Yeah, boss. Um, how'd, you, how'd you develop your purse style that was first used to hear white jazz or American tap? It was actually, it was actually LA Confidential, then white jazz, then the Colt 6000. It's true, I had to cut 150 pages without disrupting the narrative flow of LA Confidential, and I started omitting words, and I developed a sleek to the bone, fractured sentence style for that book, for White Jazz, and for the latter set, The Cold 6000. I'll never go back to that style. It was appropriate for those three books and none others. The author that wrote about the summer of 72, what's his last name, Tom? Watergate by Thomas Mallon, M-A-L-L-O-N. Pardon me? I have a copy of Shit, brother, I think you should go home and read it. <laughs> but you got to take your shades off, or you're not going to be able to see the words. <laughs> yeah, someone at the back. Yes? Yeah, you mentioned earlier that Dave Oshita was referenced in The Black Dahlias. Do you have any idea what his and Mike's relationship would have been when you wrote that? No idea. I know that he ratted 
Hideo out to the alien squad, we know from the Black Dahlia that Bucky went to Belmont High. Anybody here go to Belmont High? Beverly and Loma, the Sentinels, green and black forever? Okay. It's the way things pop if you think synchronistically. Hideo Ishida grew up in Little Tokyo, 1941. Where would he go to high school? Belmont, the Sentinels, green and black forever. In the Black Dahlia, Kay Lake references her life as a girl grown up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Where did the real William H. Parker hail from? Deadwood, South Dakota. There's a prairie motif thus in this book. Couple more questions. You, boss. Uh, how long do you have to be in Los Angeles and what has to happen to you that you can claim the city as your own if you're not from here? Like, when can we be welcomed into the tribe? Were you born here? No, sir, but I, I wish I was. You can fake your birth certificate. <laughs> People ask you where you're from. They're not asking you where you were born. You say, I'm from L.A. That's all. L.A. Come on vacation, go home on probation. <laughs> One more question. Make it deep, but not why do you write. Yes, this woman over here. Who are some of your other favorite authors? Don Cano, Thomas Mallon, my buddy Walter Kern. Those are the Donkey Don DeLillo who wrote Libra and Underworld, not the Donkey Don DeLillo who wrote all that frou-frou shit that I can't read. <laughs> hey, this man back here, you know who you look like? John Updike. Check this man out. <laughs> hey, welcome back. <laughs> Right. Yeah. I do not. I like Chopin. I like Liszt more. I like Rachmaninoff more than Liszt and Beethoven most of all for the piano. Okay. Does someone want to ask me why do you write, brother? It's got to be you. Why do you write? Come on, more people. Why do you write? In my craft or sullen art exercised in the still night when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms. I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers their arms round the griefs of the ages who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my art or craft. Dylan Thomas. Thank you, folks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.